but we're going to be in Acts chapter 26 tonight. You know, every time I study and prepare a message, I ask the Lord to give me the right words, but also to give me the right tone. Because there's sometimes when you um, preach something or study something where it where it's kind of difficult. So I always ask the Lord, Lord, um, I pray that you'll make this positive and encouraging, and, and while we're stirred and, and kind of uh, convicted in our heart, that we'll also be strengthened and full of joy and full of gratitude to you. But when we come to a subject like we have tonight, that becomes a little bit more challenging because we're going to talk uh, just for the next little bit about the subject of sin. My sin. Your sin. A lot of time we talk about the world, the sin of the world, but we're going to personalize it tonight. It's my sin that put him on the cross. It's your sin that put him on the cross. And all the guilt that's associated, all the shame that's associated, all the penalty that went with our sin was laid on him. That's the reason why that Friday happened in Jerusalem. That's the reason why that cross was put up and our Savior went on it. Now, sin's not something we're real comfortable discussing. We certainly don't want it exposed. We don't want someone to to know what's in our heart and in our desires, and that's understandable because we're embarrassed by it. But if that embarrassment leads to kind of a callousness, and we start to not be bothered by it anymore, we start to feel a lack of uh, a lack of a lack of shame. In other words, there's there's no more shame about it. It's just kind of what we do. That becomes pride. And then that starts to cause us to be resistant to the whole subject. And the enemy likes to twist that. He likes to say, well, you don't want to hear what the Bible says about sin. You just want to hear about the grace of God. You just want to hear about the goodness of God. So he tends to hide the fact that the reason God needed to shed his grace on us, the reason why Christ came is because of my sin. There's no other reason for Christ to come. There's no other explanation why Jesus would have come to earth to die the death he died, to have my shame put on him, to have all the, all the things that I have committed in my life put on him if it wasn't for sin. Why would Jesus come? Why would he bother? Why would he do that? Now, the trend over the last 30 or 40 years, we've talked this many times, I don't want to belabor it, is, is to not really talk about sin anymore. We just want to come and feel good about ourselves. We don't really want to be challenged and have to face up to that. So, so we, we kind of avoid it. But the problem is, if we study the Word of God at all, and we're going to, the Bible talks about sin. In fact, in the third chapter of the Bible, it presents the problem of all humanity, which is we are guilty of sin. And remember when Adam and Eve sinned, what happened? They immediately felt shame. We don't like talking about shame in our culture. We like everything to be PC and we want to be sensitive to people's feelings and we don't want to offend anybody. And and that has a lot of implications, parenting, schools, churches, whatever. But, but here's the reality. We're sinners. And unless we understand that, unless we own up to it, unless we confess it, unless we repent of it, unless we ask Jesus to cleanse us and transform us and change the way we think and act, we are still stuck in sin. 
A lot of people will say, well, I haven't done anything severe. I mean, it's not like I've murdered anybody or robbed anybody or, or, or done anything that offensive. No, but it doesn't matter. One lie, one evil thought, one act of lust, one anything is all it takes. Because once one sin is committed, we're not pure anymore. And God can't accept anything less than pure. So I want to just talk a couple minutes tonight from this passage about the cost of sin. Because there's something that caused my Savior to come down, to leave heaven, to live a human life, to be betrayed and rejected, to be wrongfully accused by arrogant and wicked people, to take the penalty of my sin on himself, and then to be tortured and mocked by his creation to be spit on and abused and to die a gruesome and torturous death and be put in a grave. There's something that caused that. It wasn't because Jesus was bored. It wasn't because he had nothing else to do. It was because all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. Sin's infected us, it's cursed us, it's put us in bondage, and it's sentenced us to death, and it controls every life. So unless we can find a way out by our own effort, if Jesus isn't there, unless we can find a way out of that by our own effort, we're hopeless. And to do that, to be out of sin, to be out of its bondage and its control, we have to be completely cleansed. It's not like we can just be good and, and kind of do our best and then God will accept that. We have to be completely purified, completely eradicated from sin. So, so there's got to be a way, if Jesus doesn't matter, there's got to be a way that we can figure out to do that. But here's the thing. In 7,000 years of human history, nobody's ever figured out a way. Nobody's ever been able to come up with a reasonable solution to the problem of sin other than to deny it. No one's come up with a blueprint for how it can be erased or how we can be holy and pure. In fact, nobody would even suggest that it's possible. The only hope we have is that somehow we're good enough to satisfy God. That he'll overlook the tens of thousands of sins that we've committed on the basis that we've maybe committed less than that guy. And that somehow he'll deny his holy nature and ignore the requirement of justice for our offenses. And that he'll somehow accept us because we're really nice people and we've never done anything that's really, 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 really bad. And, and, and he wouldn't want to reject us, right? Because we're great. What a pipe dream. What a hopeless thought that is. There's no degree of confidence. There's no degree of assurance. There's, there's, no, uh, there's no certainty that we could be saved on our own. So we're back in the middle of our problem. We're in darkness. There's no light shining and there's no way out. Now once we understand how desperate our situation was, and for somebody like me it's a little bit harder because I got saved when I was nine I grew up in a Christian home. I've never known real, I'm not bragging, I've never known real rebellion against God. I've had my moments, but I've never been uh, uh, violently opposed to God. Some of you grew up that way. Some of you have that background. So when you come to the table, it makes you weep because you're like, 
I've been so redeemed from who I used to be. For somebody like me, it's a little bit harder. But that doesn't change the fact that I'm every bit the sinner that you are. So the problem is before us. And we have to understand just how desperate that situation is in order to appreciate just what God has done. So let's look for a couple minutes at this passage. This is not your typical Good Friday passage, but Acts chapter 26. And I want to show about Jesus' interaction after he went back to heaven with somebody who thought he was good enough. Somebody who thought his works were going to save him and was actually arrogant about it. Saul was a Pharisee. He had reached the highest level in religious leadership in Judaism. He had obeyed the law really as well as anybody could. He had the right background, the right education, the right training, the right connections, the right position, the right identity, the right passion. And he had a full belief that that was enough. So here's why we're going to use some example tonight. And he even says this in Philippians 3. If anybody could have been saved by works, it was me. If anybody met the requirement in all of human history of saying, look, he's fulfilled everything you need to fulfill to save yourself. Paul's not bragging. He's being honest. He says, if anybody was that, it was me. But here's what he realizes. It was not enough. And we see that when we see Jesus confront him on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 26. Look at verses 12 to 18. He's telling this story later on in his life. While so engaged as I was journeying Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things that you've seen, but also to the things which will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you, to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Now in one verse, verse 15, in one verse, Jesus tells him and tells us the five main problems with sin. I want to take like a minute or two on each one. There are five main problems with sin. Number one. Sin blinds the heart of man. Sin blinds the heart of man. It tells us that death is better than life. It tells us that being selfish and self-destructive is preferable to living in a way that brings life and freedom. Now, any rational person knows that's wrong, which is why the enemy has to lie and deceive us to get us to go along. Think back to the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, he wasn't straightforward with Adam and Eve. He didn't tell them the truth that if you disobey God and you eat the fruit that he told you not to eat, it will separate you from his presence. It'll put you under bondage. It'll place a curse on your life. And it'll create conflict in your relationship with God and conflict with each other. And it will lead you, Adam and Eve, to death and destruction. Is that what the enemy tells them? 
Oh, if you eat that, you'll be like God. What a lie. He said, it'll enlighten you and give you a better perspective when actually all it did was blind them. Because that's what sin does. Sin blinds the heart of man. And God illustrated this to Saul on the road to Damascus because after Jesus meets him and says this, what does he do? He causes Saul to be blind. And Saul has to be led to the next town where he meets a very scared person because Saul killed a lot of Christians. And when he's there, and when he repents and trusts Christ as Savior, his eyes are open and he becomes a new creation and he receives a new name, Paul, and he is given a new calling to go tell what Jesus has done. Sin blinds us, it confuses us, it twists the truth, it gets us to do things we shouldn't be doing in the belief that it'll somehow be better because we're confused by our sin and by our pride, so, so it gets us on the wrong track. And listen, if that's you tonight, if I just described your life, and you're going to have to be honest with the Lord, you need to turn from that because right now you're in spiritual blindness. And it's not going to lead you anywhere good. Then Jesus tells Paul, or Saul, the second problem with sin. He says in 15, it puts a curse and a death sentence on all of us. That's what Jesus means when he says, you're in darkness. The people you're going to go to are in darkness. Darkness in the Bible always refers to spiritual rebellion and bondage. He says they're in darkness. They've offended the Lord. This is why everything surrounding the events of Jesus' death on the cross was connected to darkness. You ever thought about that? He was arrested in the dark. He was tried and condemned in the middle of the night. When he died, darkness filled the nation. And then he was placed in a tomb cut out of rock that was sealed tightly by the Romans who didn't mess around. And it was in complete darkness. And yet the Bible says in him there was no sin and no darkness. So why was Jesus there? Why was he on the cross? Why was he on the tomb? Well, we sang it earlier, right? It was my sin that put him there. The reason Jesus was on that cross was because Paul Rhodes is a sinner. The reason Jesus died is because Paul Rhodes is a sinner. The reason Jesus was placed in the dark tomb is because Paul Rhodes is a sinner. Each of us, all of us, is to blame. We chose to sin. We chose to rebel against God, to put ourselves in opposition, and to offend Him. So He takes the curse that's on us. He takes the death sentence that's on us. Because Romans says we were condemned to eternal death. And John 3 says it's because man loves darkness more than he loves light. So the first problem is sin blinds us. The second problem is it puts a curse and a death sentence on us. The third problem is that sin puts every person under bondage. It puts us in an impossible, irreparable situation. Jesus tells Saul, look at it, that we were all under the dominion of Satan. That means we as humanity, we as human beings, were members of the kingdom of Satan under his control. Now here's the lie that the enemy tells. He says, you're actually free. You're your own gods. You don't answer to anybody. 
If you will just reject God, you will be on your own. That's just the devil's cover story to hide the truth. That when we're in sin, we're under bondage and he owns us. And until we're saved, we live in his kingdom under his dominion and it's full of darkness and our minds are blinded so we can't perceive the truth and our hearts are so corrupted that we don't even realize we're in chains that we can't break. So we settle in and we think, well, this is kind of a a comfortable way to live and it's familiar, but the devil never tells us the end game that judgment and death are the only outcome. So sin blinds us. It puts a curse on us. It puts us into bondage. Number four, sin eliminates all life and all growth. By introducing the temporary pleasures that sin provides, listen now, the enemy deflects our thinking away from the fact that those pleasures don't actually give us lasting joy and lasting peace. There's no spiritual fruit. There's no spiritual contentment. And essentially our lives have no purpose when we're not following God because we're living in darkness. Now as I was studying that point, the Lord put a very strange thought on my mind. He brought to mind the planet Pluto. Now some say Pluto's no longer a planet, but I'm not giving in on this. I believe Pluto is a planet. How many are with me? Okay. Pluto's a planet. Don't tell me it's a dwarf planet. Be quiet. It's a planet. But here's the thing about Pluto. It's a rock 4.6 billion miles away. It's 4.7 billion miles from the sun. We sent a probe to Pluto in 2006, and it took nine and a half years to get there, going 30,000 miles an hour. Pluto is so far from the sun that there is no possibility of life. There's no way there will be water. There's no way there will be vegetation. The scientists don't have any interest in trying to get onto Pluto because finding life is impossible. Why? Because it's a rock out there in the darkness. That's what sin is. Sin eliminates life and it eliminates growth. And that's the final reality, number five. It prevents any way of escape or any hope of salvation. It controls us, it blinds us, it curses us, it puts us in bondage. There's no life, there's no way of escape. It's a completely hopeless position. Even if there was a way that we could save ourselves, we can't get to it because we're in chains and our sentence follow us, follows us everywhere. There's no relief and there's no exoneration unless, unless a Savior decides to rescue us. Unless a Savior decides to pay the price to free us forever. Look back at the text one more time. We're going to pray. That's what Jesus tells Saul. You needed forgiveness from your sin. You needed to be cleansed and sanctified and to be given an eternal inheritance that cannot be taken away. Later, Paul would write to the Colossians and he would say, God rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of Christ 
in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, how did Jesus do that? He did that by becoming our offering for sin. He did that by taking our place, taking our punishment, having all the penalty of our sins placed on him, dying in our place so we could be free forever. He was spotless and pure and innocent, but he took the judgment we deserved. And the day he died, as he gave up his ghost and he said, it is finished, and there was an earthquake and darkness filled the land for three hours and nobody knew what to do. Everything seemed lost. The one who came to seek and save that which is lost, now he was crucified and he was dead. There was no doubt about it. That The hope seemed all lost. Death seemed like it had won, even as he was laid in the tomb, and it was sealed up, and the disciples scatter, and they sit in a room, and they try to figure out what to do now, because Jesus is dead. Hope is gone. They didn't even understand when he told them what he was doing. They didn't understand that he was saying, I'm the only way. I'm the only hope. There's no way it's going to happen without me. If I don't make this sacrifice, if I don't take your place, you are stuck in sin forever. But they sat there for two days in darkness. But how many know that soon morning would break and the darkness would end and the tomb would open up and light would fill the sky and everything would change for all eternity. Because Jesus was alive and any power that sin had was now gone. Any victory that sin claimed was now gone. And Jesus had victory. That is what we are going to come back, Lord willing, in two days and celebrate. Because that fills us with confidence and assurance and joy every day as believers. So what's our takeaway? We're done. I pray tonight that we will be sobered by our sin, that we will realize and understand in a fresh way the, the penalty and the cost that it's put on our life. And listen, I don't know every person in this room, if you've never trusted Christ, if you've never repented of your sin, I want to tell you tonight, God is willing to forgive you. God is willing to free you. God is willing to save you forever. And I pray that I have not gotten in the way that the Holy Spirit has said that to you and affirmed that to you. And I pray if you don't know Jesus tonight, that you have been stirred to the point where you cannot walk out of this building without saying, I've got to give my life to Jesus Christ. I want to experience the love and grace that he has obviously shown to me. You don't have to live in darkness anymore. You don't have to live in bondage anymore. You don't have to live in blindness anymore. And if you make that decision, if you're making that decision right now, do not leave this building tonight without talking to one of us. I'll be up front, leaders will be up front, prayer band will be up front, and if you say, well, I don't feel, that's kind of intimidating to walk up there, turn to the person next to you at the end of the service and say, will you go up there with me? Any person in this room would be glad to do that. Because this is your salvation. And listen, if you do know him,
Aren't you grateful that you've been transferred from darkness to light? Oh, I pray that our awareness of sin will be only eclipsed by our awareness of how incredible God's grace is. And the Bible says that when you understand that, Romans 13 says, now lay aside all the works of darkness and walk as children of light. I don't know about you, but I'm glad I'm able to do that tonight because of Jesus Christ. Let's thank him and praise him.